0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Against Gravity How G.K. Chesterton Teaches Us to Take Ourselves Lightly. The Stack and Talk from a mini conference on humorous literature by Matt Carpenter. The title of this talk is Against Gravity, How G.K. Chesterton Teaches Us to Take Ourselves Lightly. There's no preparation for the first time you meet G.K. Chesterton. It's like walking into into a spring thunderstorm while the sun continues to shine. The first time I ventured into his work, Orthodoxy, I was lost, turned upside down in my own room, Or, maybe I should say, turned right side up. I was 22 years old. I couldn't put my finger on it, but the joyful inquisitor's words kept ringing in my ear. Sentences like, the things I believe in most then, the things I believe most now, are the things called fairy tales. They seem to me to be the entirely reasonable things another quote when we are asked why eggs turn into birds or fruits fall in autumn we must answer exactly as the fairy godmother would answer we must answer that it is magic excuse me the only words that ever satisfied me as describing nature are the terms used in the fairy books, charm, spell, enchantment. They express the arbitrariness of the fact and its mystery. A tree grows because it is a magic tree. Water runs downhill because it is bewitched. The sun shines because it is bewitched. End quote. These are just a few sentences that struck me like bolts of lightning. Unlike being struck by lightning, though, I found I wanted to be struck again and again. Soon, I saw that Chesterton wasn't calling on us to believe bizarre things, just unique explanations for normal things. He calls on the reader to delight in the wisdom that comes as an adult, while preserving the vision of childlike wonder. Reading Chesterton for the first time was like the initial bite of an appetizer when you don't know you're starving. We've all had that experience before. You ever eaten one bite of something and said, I did not realize how hungry I was. Or the first step, In climbing a lovely high mountain you're one step closer but you know I want to go further Gilbert Keith Chesterton was not just a man he was a force of nature born in London in 1874 he was six foot four 300 pounds give or take 50 (laughs) at any one given time he was both a knight and a jester wearing a cape literally he always wore a cape and carried a sword cane his delight in life could be seen in the simple joys he pursued he loved children's birthday parties much more than the stuffy gatherings of aristocrats of which he also had experience attending this rotund jolly fearless and wise writer could pack more into a paragraph than many do in an entire book. Yet his profundity was not in scholarly depth, but in joyful paradox, delighting in the mysteries of life, whether wondering at the glory of God and the beauty of the heavens, or in the magnificent whiteness of milk. For instance, one quote, the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid the difference between the poet and the mathematician is that the poet tries to get his head into the heavens while the mathematician tries to get the heavens into his head another journalism largely consists in saying Lord Jones is dead to people who never knew that Lord Jones was alive his depth was not excuse me his depth is revealed not only in quotes but in essays novels and poems he attended art school rather than college he was asked afterwards to contribute an article to an art magazine and his article was so popular that he began writing full-time his breadth is wider than almost anyone he wrote about theology philosophy, economics, politics, social criticism, literary criticism, history, fantasy, detective fiction, and adventure stories. His biographer Dale Alquist, uh, just one of many biographers I would add, summarized his influence this way, quote, this absent-minded overgrown elf of a man who laughed at his own jokes and amused children at parties by catching buns in his mouth, this was the man who wrote a book called The Everlasting Man, which led a young atheist named C.S. Lewis to become a Christian. This was the man who wrote a novel called The Napoleon of Notting Hill, which inspired Michael Collins to lead a movement for Irish independence. This was the man who wrote an essay in the Illustrated London News that inspired Mohandas Gandhi to lead a movement to end British colonial rule in India. This was a man who, when commissioned to write a book on St. Thomas Aquinas, had his secretary check out a stack of books on St. Thomas from the library, opened the top book of the stack, thumbed through it, closed it, and proceeded to dictate a book on St. Thomas. End quote. Alquist goes on to quote the medieval scholar Etienne Gilson, who said that Chesterton's biography is, quote, without possible comparison, the best book ever written on St. Thomas. Nothing short of genius can account for such an achievement. Everybody will no doubt admit that it is a clever book, but the few readers who have spent 20 or 30 years in studying St. Thomas cannot fail to perceive that the so-called wit of Chesterton has put their scholarship to shame, end quote. By the way, I love that story because it, it tells you. When it, to add to it, when his secretary said, "What books do you want?" he said, "Oh, just any books." That was all he told her. So she went to the library and just brought whatever she found with her and set it down. And he would just he just looked through them and he would dictate. And so, at his height, not his six four height, but at the height of his mental powers, he could. At one point he would have two secretaries and he could dictate two different essays to each secretary at the same time while writing a third (laughs) kind of makes you sick maybe not you but me Uh, with holy jealousy of course of course Believe me, I could not do that in preparing these lectures at all. I could go on talking about Chesterton's influence, but this talk is specifically on Chesterton as a humorist. His comedy could communicate profound truth with a light touch. This frustrated many of his contemporaries who took the problems of the present time with grave seriousness. After all, aren't the problems of the modern age something? over which to be worried not for Chesterton when interviewed once by the Cleveland Press he advocated for an emphasis on localism but in a way that only Chesterton could quote what we should try to do is make politics as local as possible keep the politicians near enough to kick them the villagers who met under the village tree could also hang their politicians on the village tree it's, a ter- it's terrible to contemplate how few politicians are hung today. End quote. That was published, by the way. Or when Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytic theories were growing in popularity, Chesterton wrote this poem for his magazine, the GK Weekly, entitled On Professor Freud. Here's the poem. The ignorant pronounce it Freud to cavil or applaud. The well informed pronounce it Freud, but I pronounce it fraud. <laughs> when defending the idea of tradition, Chesterton declared that tradition had a surprising ally in democracy. He said it this way Quote, I've never been able to understand where people get the idea that democracy was in some ways opposed to tradition. It is obvious that tradition is only democracy extended through time it is trusting the consensus of common human voices rather than some to some isolated or arbitrary record skipping over a little bit he goes on tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes our ancestors it is the democracy of the dead tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who happen to be walking about end quote. in the early 1900s the idea of eugenics was popular based on Darwinism's flawed view of man eugenics taught that those who were not competent or evolved enough should not be allowed to reproduce Leonard Darwin the son of Charles Darwin said that there were three ways to accomplish eugenics that is the gas chamber For sterilization or segregation. Uh, Leonard only advocated the latter two, saying that the first was immoral. Now, of course, on what basis he made that deduction, it's impossible to tell. Certainly not on his father's views. At some point in the early 1900s, every state in the United States had eugenics laws on their books thousands were unknowingly surgically sterilized told by their doctors they needed their appendix out or their gallbladder removed for the sole reason that they doctors said that they would produce unfit offspring this view was later imported to Germany where a certain dictator believed Leonard Leonard Darwin's first method of eugenics was not off the table. When the Mental Deficiency Act of 1913 was passed Chesterton did what he did best. He wrote a book entitled Eugenics and Other Evils where he exposed the doctrine at the heart of the eugenics movement. In it he lays bare the euphemistic nonsense by which eugenicists cover their tracks. Quote It was best presented perhaps by the distinguished doctor who wrote the article on these matters in that composite book which Mr. Wells, that is H.G. Wells, edited and called The Great State. He said the doctor should no longer be a mere plasterer of paltry maladies, but should be, in his own words, the health advisor of the community. The same can be expressed with even more point and simplicity in the proverb that prevention is better than cure. Commenting on this, I said that it amounted to treating all people who are well as if they were ill. This the writer admitted to be true, only adding that everyone is ill. To which I rejoined that if everyone is ill, then the health advisor is ill too and therefore cannot know how to cure the minimum of illness. This is the fundamental fallacy in the whole business of preventative medicine. Prevention is not better than cure. Cutting off a man's head is not better than curing his headache. End quote. We've recently seen the problems of turning over national or local health to the experts, to the professional class, who have wonderful ideas about how to make us all more healthy individuals or how to prevent us from getting anything that could harm, potentially. While some of these quotes are certainly serious, Chesterton wrote with grace. Grace, even his disagreeing counterparts, could appreciate. George Bernard Shaw, who himself, was a eugenicist, spoke of how Chesterton at least helped him see the opposite way of thinking. While Chesterton wrote with wit and verve, he didn't write with anger. His wit was aimed at piercing the layer of skin that held the infection, not gashing the opponent as deeply as possible in hope of debilitation. This is further evidenced in his most profound yet lesser-known book, The Everlasting Man. H.G. Wells had before written a book called The Outline of History, and it was to encapsulate the evolutionary nature of man and the view that history is the story of man's progress from Neanderthal to necessary oppression— via monarchy to liberal democracy made possible through technological means so a little over 100 years ago hg wells was saying it's going to get better because technology is going to improve we will no longer need any oppression from above we will all continue moving and technology will free us from the need for government interference because our technological progress will be so far superior. It will render the need for government unnecessary. Does this sound familiar? Wells was right, except he thought it was a wonderful thing for this to happen. Chesterton's friend, Hilaire Belloc, wrote a scathing review of Wells' book to which Wells responded. They went back and forth, and per- personally, they were attacking one another. And any semblance of friendship that had been between Wells and Belloc died. Chesterton, on the other hand, didn't write in pure opposition of Wells, the man, but to, but he pointed to a better way than H. G. Wells' philosophy. As Chesterton saw it, Wells missed the most important paradox in all of life. That man was made in God's image and was redeemed by God himself in the most paradoxical way possible, by God becoming man. Chesterton will say that we would expect that a God would simply, by decree, declare everyone right and in a better state. But that's not what he did. It was not merely by his decree, but decree that was worked through the coming of a Savior. And of all places for this to begin, the God-man began his earthly work in a stable. Quote, A mass of legend and literature has sprung from this single paradox that in the hands that made the sun and stars were too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle. Upon this paradox, all the literature of our faith has was founded. End quote. Later, he goes on to say, quote, "On the third day, the friends of Christ, coming at daybreak to the place, found the grave empty and the stone rolled away." In varying ways they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation and a new heaven and new earth, and in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. And I'd be remiss if I did not include this quote from The Everlasting Man, one of my favorite in all of literature. Christendom has had a series of revolutions. And in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again for it has a God who knew the way out of the grave. You can see how C.S. Lewis, as an atheist, would come across this book and call it later the greatest apologetic work he'd ever read, playing a significant part in his own conversion. Chesterton, too, was delighted in the gospel. He was too delighted in the gospel to let the faulty optimism of wells, weary him. We get weary sometimes of all the projected optimism skeptics have. They think they have a better way. They project their better way. Whether we can rationally explain why it will not work, we know it will not work. But sometimes it just kind of wears you down. You get tired of arguing. You get tired of explaining and it can you tend to just keep it keep the joy to yourself and it starts to shrivel. We can't let it shrivel. We have to feed that joy. Feed the eternal hope. And the good news is that the eternal hope It does not die because it is resurrected and was resurrected with the Savior. And because the Spirit abides in us, hope is continually reborn. It's not just an abstract hope. It's a living hope because it's hope tied to Christ. Chesterton's novels, sometimes frivolous, sometimes silly, always make a point. Take his novel, Man Alive. The plot centers around a stranger named Innocent Smith who brings whimsical delight into a moribund home. And you can actually contrast, uh, I'm not the first one to point this out, you can contrast Innocent Smith and Mary Poppins by I believe P.L. Travers. I know her last name was Travers. You can contrast those two but let me tell you at the beginning Man Alive is a much better work than Mary Poppins. Sadly Walt Disney or maybe for the good Walt Disney never made Man Alive into a movie. Definitely for the good now. So Innocent Smith, he he comes into this home. He brings delight, brings joy to the home. Yet, at the height of their joy, the police come in and take him away because of charges of polygamy, burglary, and attempted murder. We witness the trial of Innocent Smith who gives a good and clear defense of all his actions, all of which are only possible because he sees life with the humility and delight of a child. Because of the way he, he, the things that he did, and he did not commit the actual crimes, by the way. He, he, he is innocent, of course. But his work, he, he, the reason he did what he did was to bring this family joy, and to just bring joy to himself. The tale, his, Chesterton's work, Tales of the Longbow, is a series of chapters, each of which sees a different man doing something considered impossible. In one chapter, a man eats his hat. You've heard the expression before, if some, such and such happens, I'll eat my hat. Well, this man does. Or another, in another chapter, a man makes a, a purse out of a sow's ear another chapter a man helps makes pigs fly those who reach these inconceivable goals then come together they join forces and create the League of the Longbow a group who resists the takeover of local land by a cabal of government and big business leaders this One book, for me, holds a very special place in my heart because in God's providence, I finished it the day after I heard the Obergefell v. Hodges Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage nationally. This book gave me hope that no matter what happens, the good that seems destined to lose can and eventually will be restored. But only like the foolishness of God, only with the foolishness of God, that overcomes the wisdom of man. And Tales of the Longbow is definitely a story of foolishness that overcomes technocratic wisdom. Time fails to talk about Chesterton's excellent detective novels featuring the gentle, observant, and wise priest known as Father Brown. His work in detective fiction would aid him in supporting the start of the Detection Club, a group of detective writers that included the likes of Dorothy Sayers, Ronald Knox, Agatha Christie, and others. Chesterton served as the president of the Detection Club from 1930 until his death in 1936. Did not even mention his poetry. He wrote wonderful and silly poetry. He also wrote epic poetry. His book, or excuse me, his poem, The Ballad of the White Horse, tells the story of King Alfred and his battle with the Vikings, with the Danes. It is a wonderful, wonderful, and deeply stirring poem about a man who helps to restore those still early embers of Christendom that hadn't even come to their full flourishing yet. But... Lessons from Chesterton. Number one, the first lesson that we learned. Sometimes we must look at the world upside down to see it right side up. When the enemy overturns the world, looking at it upside down is the only way to see it aright. To see things as they actually are. From the beginning, our enemy worked to pervert the good. He has no creative powers, only destructive ones. We live in a world that hates authority, but loves power, despises sex, but embraces sexuality, proclaims freedom through mutilation, and promises life by giving you the keys to your own death. The demonic parasite of perversion blurs man's vision and de- drives the world to its destruction. God's people have the only antidote. In his essay, Is Humanism Religion? Chesterton says, quote, The fact is this, that the modern world, with its modern movements, is living on its Catholic, and I would actually here insert the word Christian, Capital. The world is living on its Christian capital. It is using and using up the truths that remain to it out of the old treasury of Christendom, including, of course, many truths known to pagan antiquity but crystallized in Christendom. End quote. This demands that we present a vision of the world and a vision of... To the world. Not a Christian utopian paradise, and this is where we can often make a mistake. We think it has to be a perfect world. Here, there will be no perfect world. But an incarnate vision of people transformed through Christ. This may mean less combative social criticism and more constructive scouring when the pan is dirty and your neighbor insists that it's clean you can spend your time arguing over epistemology or you can clean it, bake a loaf of bread and offer some of that bread to your neighbor the way out isn't dependent on your argument about the pan the way out is only seen through supernatural love That's not to say there's no place for proclaiming what's right. But don't be shocked when people don't take your word for it. This is where your vision of the world shines through. When you point to the stars, as Chesterton likely would have, and announce, those are the heavens proclaiming the glory of God. Excuse me, the heavenly hosts proclaiming the glory of God. And your neighbor said, no, that's actually just the stars didn't you ever read a science textbook? How will you respond? Sure, you can get angry. You can mock and say, you poor nitwit, you've not read your Bible. Sap. But getting angry is not the answer. Mocking is not the answer. Neither is pouting that no one agrees with you. No, embrace the new vision of the world given through Christ and live it out one day at a time. Be willing to look at the world upside down as the world has turned everything in the wrong way. Number two, second lesson from Chesterton, humility leads to laughter. He once wrote, quote, the secret of life lies in laughter and humility, end quote. The best laughter does not stem from sardonic delight, but joyful gratitude. Some of Chesterton's critics, who were usually sure he was disagreeing with them, weren't sure due to his jolly writing. As one of his critics said, quote, he has nothing of that paltry meanness, talking about Chesterton, he has nothing of that paltry meanness or strange density of so many of his colleagues who put us down as aimless iconoclasts or moral anarchists. He admits that we are waging a thankless war for what we take to be truth and progress. He is doing the same. But why, in the name of all that is reasonable, should we, when we agree on the momentousness of the issue either way, forthwith desert serious methods of conducting the controversy? In other words, why does Chesterton, why does Chesterton take everything so humorously? Chesterton answers this way. And this is to the same man. He said, The question of whether a man expresses himself in a grotesque or laughable phraseology or in a state of restrained and stately phraseology is not a question of motive or moral state it is a question of instinctive language and self-expression whether a man chooses to tell the truth in long sentences or short jokes is a problem analogous to whether he chooses to tell the truth in French or German End quote yet I don't think Chesterton saw humor as merely one method of communication, but usually a better method. To pull it off, though, humility was necessary. When we see the world as God's theater, one where he built the set, the props, and the actors, and then breathed life into them and set them on stage of the grandest comedy tempered with brief tragedies but overwhelmed with jokes riddles and funny stories all the while working toward a climactic and comic finish it's hard for us to say meh but it does require that we don't see ourselves as the main stars on stage but creatures submitted to the divine director waiting expectantly for the next for what the next scene may bring when we view the world with this type of humility we can understand chesterton's words quote praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul the third and last thing i would say chesterton teaches us simply don't take yourself too seriously quote angels fly because they take themselves lightly. (laughs) Chesterton remarked this in Orthodoxy. God has given all of us serious work to do that will impact eternity. But in one of life's many paradoxes, the more anxious we are about how our work will impact the world, the less positive our impact will likely be. Our job is not to think less of ourselves but to think of ourselves less no one wants to be considered a fool but as st. Paul teaches us and Chesterton echoes only those willing to become fools can overcome the world we can't care what the world thinks of our joy our hope or our life in God Michael Asquith, a contemporary of Chesterton, talked about how he was a true jester. Quote, Chesterton was the only man I have ever seen stuck in a door. It was entirely typical of him that he seemed to greatly enjoy the experience. I think this was perhaps another reason for his great popularity with children his willingness to make himself ridiculous in public willingness is really too weak a word he positively delighted in it he was in fact so far the reverse of pompous that you might almost say he was always standing on his indignity others might proclaim their triumphs and recite their success stories it was in his failures and fiascos that G.K. Chesterton preferred to glory Does that sound familiar with, anything, with anyone like the Apostle Paul? Later, a jester of genius, he certainly was. But he was first and foremost a prophet. The cap and bells were only a means to capture an audience. This done, they were thrown aside. The cap and bells were thrown aside. And the jester got down to his real business, which was not entertainment, but salvation. End quote. Not everyone has the personality of G.K. Chesterton. And no one quite like him will come along again. But his writing can teach us how to overcome the soul-withering gravity of the world. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at TrinityReformedKirk.com That's TrinityReformedKirk.com yeah.